Most of you are familiar with the TARDIS, and St. Peter's Church is becoming, to me, a little like the TARDIS. A number of Sundays ago, I came in uh, in the anticipation I was beginning a series on the Gospel of John, and when I left that evening, I thought I was probably beginning a series on the prologue to the Gospel of John, and uh, that's going to take as many weeks. And this evening I come in, uh, ignoramus as I am about the church's calendar, and my brother in Christ, although we're not brothers according to the flesh, at least uh, not uh, in immediate connection, informs me that today is Pentecost. How many of you knew that today was Pentecost? You can put your hands down, those of you who knew that today was uh, Pentecost. Well, that's uh, kudos to you. Uh, And so, I've been sitting there thinking, in our elders' day yesterday, uh, our minister said, I really would love to celebrate Ascension and Pentecost. And uh, so, I want us to Uh, turn to Acts chapter 2 and uh, celebrate Pentecost. We're not usually in the same position when it comes to the exposition of Scripture, and the man who is preaching is supposed to know what he's going to say before he says it, but uh, it it just seems to me that it will will be uh, a year before we celebrate Pentecost again, and it would be a shame for us especially in the light of our minister's uh, desire that we didn't at least this evening celebrate Pentecost. So, I want to turn with you to Acts chapter 2. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Most of you will know it well. Uh, The apostles have been waiting with others, with about 108 others in Jerusalem, according to Christ's command, for the coming of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, on the day of Pentecost. There is this extraordinary scene breaks out, a manifestation of power and majesty that in many ways is such an echo of the coming of God on various occasions uh, described in the Old Testament Scriptures. And uh, they go out and they preach the gospel. And we have this remarkable sermon of Simon Peter. It's, it's very remarkable, at least for this reason. Just a few weeks ago, Simon Peter did not understand the gospel. He did not understand the gospel. Um, and within two months after these uh, periodic seminars that Jesus has been having with them after his resurrection, he has such an understanding of the gospel that almost entire libraries have been written on what he says here in Acts chapter 2. And so, he draws on the Old Testament Scriptures. He realizes that the Old Testament Scriptures all point to the Savior Jesus Christ. And he refers at some length to Joel chapter 2, the prophecy of Joel, of the outpouring of the Spirit in the last days on 
all flesh. And he interprets to the people the significance of what they have seen, the significance of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he does this from verse 22 onwards by reminding them of what has happened in Jerusalem, the passion, the death, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on then to, in a sense, explain what is therefore happening now? What is it that is happening now? And here is his explanation. Verse 33, everything beforehand is about the passion, death, burial, resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Now, what he says is about the ascension of Jesus and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified." Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are afar off. That is for you, for your children, and those who are far off is a kind of technical term for the Gentile world, for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So, those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. My guess is, if you ask most Christians, what is Pentecost about? What is Pentecost about? The answer is likely to be, Pentecost is about the Holy Spirit. But it's fairly clear, isn't it, when you read these words of Simon Peter, that in the light of the coming of the Holy Spirit, what Peter actually preached to the people explaining the significance of the Holy Spirit was really this. Pentecost is really about Jesus. And of course, in a sense, we could have guessed that from what Jesus says in John 16, when He says, when the Spirit comes, He is not going to bear witness to Himself. He is not to glorify Himself. He will not draw attention to Himself or shine on Himself, but He will shine on the Lord Jesus. And so, while uh, there is much in this passage about the Holy Spirit, if we concluded that Pentecost was about the Holy Spirit, we'd be looking at the floodlight rather than the one whom it's floodlighting. We would be looking at the 
pointer rather than the one to whom the Holy Spirit points. And indeed, in a rather wonderful way, this uh, passage in Acts chapter 2 tells us that Jesus' words in John 16, 8 through 11 find their first and perhaps their greatest fulfillment on the day of Pentecost. When the Spirit comes, He will testify to me, and He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. All you remember in relationship to me. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 16. He says, now when the Spirit comes, this is what will result. He will convict the world of sin because they do not believe in me. He will convict the world of righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. He will convict the world of judgment because in my work on the cross, the ruler, that is Satan, the ruler of this world is judged. And this is Jesus' own prophecy of Pentecost. And this is what happens at Pentecost, isn't it? This is a, this is a direct fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. The Spirit comes, He shines on Jesus And men and women are convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment, and they cry out in a way that probably few of us in the room have ever seen, perhaps experienced it individually. They cry out, what must we do? And their attention is drawn, isn't it, to Christ. And as they are called to trust in Christ and repent of their sins, they're given this assurance that through the Spirit, they'll be brought to Christ, and they will experience the forgiveness of their sins. So, when we think about the significance of this day in the church's calendar, or in other churches' calendar, I'm not sure it's in the free church's calendar, when we think about the significance of this day, Peter is urging us to focus our gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what is it that when the Spirit comes, we learn about the Lord Jesus Christ? It's an interesting reality that by uh, this time in the story of the Jewish people, Pentecost was the day, the season in which they celebrated the giving of the law. And uh, that's significant for this reason, that the giving of the law at Sinai, what happened? Moses climbed the mountain of the Lord into the presence of the Lord, and he brought down the law of the Lord written in tablets of stone, which law the people broke, which covenant the people broke. But when Jesus, the greater than Moses, the the prophet Moses promised would come, when Jesus ascends the hill of the Lord, when He ascends into the glorious presence of God, He comes down not with the law as such, but in the power of the Holy Spirit to enable believers to keep the law. The very thing Paul says in Romans 8, 3, and 4, what the law couldn't do when Moses brought it down the mountain because it was weakened through the sinfulness of our flesh, God has done in Jesus Christ, condemning our sin in Him and enabling those who walk according to the Spirit to live for His glory. 
So, in a sense, Pentecost is the beginning of the possibility of living the Christian life. Pentecost is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Ezekiel that the Lord would sprinkle clean water and His people would then be careful to keep His commandments. Pentecost is the fulfillment of the new covenant promise of Jeremiah that when the Spirit came, He would write the law of the Lord into the hearts of His people. And so, in this wonderful sense, just as our Savior has borne the judgment curse of Sinai, our Savior now on the day of Pentecost reverses the consequences of Sinai for His people. Jesus ascends, the Spirit comes down, and believers are transformed and learn to love the law and to walk in the law of the Lord. And when this happens, uh, Peter says, we need to understand the inner significance of the whole of this, because the primary meaning of Pentecost, if those of you who are uh, not British citizens uh, will excuse the language which is biblical, the significance of Pentecost, the fundamental significance of Pentecost is that the coronation of the Lord Jesus has taken place. Uh, This is what Peter says, doesn't he? He says he was crucified, but now he says God has raised him up, and God has made him both Lord and Christ. This is why at the end of the day, the apostles were so thrilled about what happened at Pentecost and why it energized them so much, because it told them something that they could not see. It told them that the promise that Jesus had given to them had actually taken place now behind the scenes of time and space, and that when Jesus had ascended into heaven and disappeared from their sight, the words with which Luke ends the first part of his two-part book, the gospel and the acts of the apostles. Pentecost answers the question, so what happened next? And what happened next was that when he was received out of their sight, he was received into the throne room of God and exalted This is why, actually, the early fathers in the church love to use Psalm 24, verses 7 to 10, in connection with the day of Pentecost. Actually, we love to sing it too, don't we? A cappella. Ye gates, lift up your heads on high. The King of glory is coming. And the the answer that comes back, as it were, from, from the angel guards of the heavenly temple is who is this King of glory? And the response of the angels who bear Jesus into the presence of the glory of God, as it were, as His honor guard, is this is the one who has done battle against Satan. This is the one who has judged the prince of this world. This is the one who has despoiled the kingdoms of darkness, and now he leads captivity captive, and he's returning home to glory. 
So that what takes place on the day of Pentecost is the assurance to the apostles that Jesus has been crowned, crown Him with many crowns, the Lamb upon the throne. And uh, that's the chief reason for the kind of explosion that takes place. Um, those of you who are of my age, you remember the coronation. We prayed for the queen today, but uh, there are only some of us who remember her coronation. If you ask people, when did Elizabeth become queen? They usually say, don't they, 1953. But that's not when she became queen, is it? She became queen in 1952. She was crowned queen in 1953. Think about that in connection with Jesus. When did Jesus become king? Jesus became king when He conquered Satan and rose again from the dead. That was when He became king. He was able to say before His ascension, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me before His ascension. So, what happens at His ascension is not Him becoming king. It's Him being crowned as king. How many of you remember 1953? How many of you were at school in 1953? How many of you were at school in Glasgow in 1953? <laughs> Just Harry and I. Remember what we got, Harry? We got, there were controversies in the newspapers about the differences that children at school were experiencing in the gifts that were given to them to celebrate the coronation. Glasgow, you got this kind of miserable mug, you know, full of sweeties that ruined your teeth. You know, in Edinburgh, what did they get in it? I don't know, they might have got golden crowns in Edinburgh, for all I know. My mug was broken, probably worth a fortune today. But you see, that's what happens at a coronation. It doesn't happen when a president is installed or when a prime minister is elected. But it's always happened historically when a king has been crowned, that the majesty of his reign will be celebrated, the riches of his glory, the weight of his glory will be demonstrated by the lavishness of the provision that is made to celebrate the fact that He is King. And you see, the point is that it's not repeatable during His reign, nor is Pentecost. It, it would be as it would be as unwise to think that Pentecost itself is repeated as it would be to think that Calvary is repeated. Why? Because Jesus is now enthroned. He will reign forever. He will not need another coronation. And so, this is what we've got to grasp. This is actually what transformed these disciples on the day of Pentecost. It wasn't just the, the sheer singular power of the experience that they had. It was the fact that they understood what was happening, that this same Jesus 
whom you crucified. I mean, think of it. He is actually pointing the finger, this man who on the evening of Christ's crucifixion ran away, this man is pointing his finger and looking in the eye at some men of whom this was literally true. You are responsible for his crucifixion. How could he have that courage? Because now he was persuaded by the coming of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was king, that Jesus reigned, that Jesus was Lord of all, and that those words he had spoken, the very last words they had heard from his lips, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. They were true, and he had demonstrated that he had been crowned invisibly, but really in the presence of God by this lavish outpouring of gifts through the Holy Spirit, so that they spoke in other tongues, and people from all over the world could understand them. And that, of course, is the second element in the significance of Pentecost, not just that He is enthroned, but that He is a King and Savior for all who will come to Him. This is the, this is the point of the of the speaking and hearing of the gospel in many languages. The, the point is not the wonder of this extraordinary gift. The wonder is, and the, the hearers recognize this, the wonder is we hear about Christ each in His own tongue. And this was a staggering thing. This took place in the epicenter of Old Testament religion. This took place in the one place on earth that people believed that through the high priest especially, you could have a representative access into the presence of God. And in a way, what Pentecost was saying is that God has burst out of the holiest place because the holiest place is now found in Jesus Christ in heaven and He's pouring out His Spirit now on all flesh for all the nations. Of course, in the Old Testament Scriptures, it was clear that God's covenant with His people was so that the nations would hear, but His people had failed to bring the Word to the nations. The psalmist was able to say, God is known in Israel, by implication meaning He's not known anywhere else. And the fact that you and I are sitting here tonight as those who believe in Jesus and trust in Jesus is the direct effect of this breaking down of the old boundary markers that had been set up in ancient days so that the Word of Christ would go to all the nations and all the nations would, would hear in, in their own language. I mean, in a sense, it's saying to us, there's no point in us talking about the Holy Spirit unless we have some kind of passion that all the nations will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, because that's what the coming of the Holy Spirit produces in people, this, this burden shared with Christ, that the gospel should be taken to the ends of the earth, because Jesus is as 
the apostles will later say, the only name given under heaven through whom men and women and boys and girls may be saved. But there's a third element in this. Um, There are about ten elements in this, but we'll stop somewhere. The third element in this is a very beautiful element. It is that Jesus has fulfilled a promise that He made only to 11 men. As far as we know, there were only 12 men with Jesus in the upper room at the Last Supper. No servants, because we know Jesus ended up washing the other disciples' feet. And then we know that after that, Judas left. And it was after that that Jesus said this to His apostles. He said, now, it's for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the the Spirit will not come. They're puzzling words, aren't they? Um, You know, often think sitting in a congregation, if if you were given an offer, you can either have Jesus the way He was in the upper room, or you can have the Holy Spirit. I mean, just imagine that, that He could be here. I mean, so you could see Him. Tell the color of His eyes. Know whether the great artists had really been right about Him. Or would you rather have the Holy Spirit? And Jesus is saying to them, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, then the Holy Spirit won't come to you. And so, what I'm going to do is, and He says this to, it is so moving, I find. He says to these very distraught disciples, I am going to ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate, paraclete, counselor, comforter, who will indwell you and will be with you forever. But it, it's, it's those words, I will ask the Father. So, when did He ask the Father? Well, apparently, He asked the Father when He had ascended to the right hand of the Father. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God… Now, have you ever noticed these words? They're so interesting in Acts 2.33 and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. So, you see, there's a chronological order here, isn't there? First of all, exalted at the right hand of the Father. Last of all, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, and in the middle, the explanation. I mean, what a moment this must have been for the the cherubim and seraphim and the for Moses and Elijah, who had discussed with Jesus the exodus he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. It's only Luke who who tells us, uses the word exodus in, I think, Luke chapter 9. And the the myriad of uh, righteous men made perfect as as Hebrews describes them. I mean, imagine imagine being an, an eyewitness of that moment when Jesus ascends and goes into the, the very presence of the Father. We can, we can only put this in language we can understand. 
And, you know, any of us who have been children, which most of us here have been, most of you look pretty human to me, or our fathers, you know, little Johnny says, give me. And you say, no. He says, but I want. And you remember what your own father said, I want, never gets. You see, then if little Johnny says, Father, you promised. Well, that will, that will unloosen the wallet, won't it? You promised. You can imagine the scene. I mean, here are these here are these sinners, here are these people who have been involved in the execution of Jesus, and the angels have been astonished that Jesus has prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Perhaps they don't, perhaps they don't see enough, know enough to realize that that prayer is actually going to be answered on the day of Pentecost, and some of those who are instrumental in the crucifixion of their king are going to be converted because he's gone to his Father, and all heaven goes absolutely silent. And he says those magic words, Father, you promised me. Ah, son, I promised you that if you would do this for their salvation, remember Psalm 2, I would give you the ends of the earth for your inheritance. And we both know that if you are to receive the ends of the earth for your inheritance, the, the only way that can be accomplished is if together we pour out our Holy Spirit. And so, the Father fulfills His promise to the Son that if he would ask of him in the light of his crucifixion and resurrection, if he would ask of him for the ends of the earth, that's Psalm 2 verse 8, I think, then he would give him the ends of the earth, and therefore he would fulfill his promise to him. That means that you may pour out your Holy Spirit upon the people, and the Spirit will do the work of convicting and converting of sin and righteousness and judgment. And that very thing happens. I mean, if Peter understood this much, actually, if, if Peter could preach this sermon, you would be pretty sure he understood this much. You'd be pretty sure, I think. Now, it's hypothesis, but you'd be pretty sure that in those seminars Jesus continued to have with them between His resurrection and His ascension, that and presumably many of them knew many passages in the Old Testament by heart. He might have said, now this evening, let's spend half an hour on the second psalm. Do you see how? And you can, you can almost imagine Peter saying, you know, still a bit thick. Well, I see this bit about the ends of the earth, but there are just, they're just 11 of us left, and yes, some, some others only going to be 120 of us there on the day of Pentecost. How is this going to be fulfilled? Ah, Peter, don't you remember how I said, and I will ask the Father, and He will send you the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit comes, oh, what words, He will take what belongs to me, and He will put it on display. And this is actually what happens in Peter's sermon, isn't it? Jesus is put on display. 
It's exactly like what Paul says in Galatians 3, you foolish Galatians before whom Jesus Christ was placarded in my preaching as crucified. And he's, he's been placarding before them. What happened? What happened actually in, in the sight of some of them? Perhaps some of them, unlike ourselves, could actually conjure up the reality of that afternoon. And he's saying, this Jesus whom you crucified, do you remember how he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He has been raised. He has ascended. He has been crowned. And the meaning of this is not that we are filled with new wine. It is but nine o'clock in the morning. It is that he is here and he is merciful. Oh, what must we do? Oh, he says, repent and be baptized because he prayed you would be forgiven, and he will forgive you. And there's something else here, and I think with this we'll need to finish. It is that uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit is for Peter the inauguration of the last days. Uh, you know how the Old Testament basically divides all history after the fall into the, into the present age and the, the messianic age, the present age and the future age, the present day and the last days. And this is why Peter picks up the prophecy in Joel chapter 2 that begins, and in the last days, in the last days, He's saying, you want to understand the meaning of this? Part of the meaning of this is the last days have just been inaugurated. The days of the reign of God, the days of the messianic king, the days of Jesus' victory. Jesus has bound the strong man armed, and to use the language of Revelation 20, he is now going out in the preaching of the gospel to undeceive the nations, all the nations. Just as you remember when uh, in Genesis chapter 11, we had that epitome of man's rebellion when man built this, this uh, tower, this ziggurat, temple tower, as it were, up to heaven and boasted, we will pull him down. Not the way they said at the French Revolution, we'll pull down their cathedrals will destroy God. Remember what God did? He came down again on that occasion. He'd already come down in the flood. Now He came down again on that occasion. But now, since He had promised never again to flood the earth, now His judgment took a different form. I you know, if you ever had a classical education, you regret the fact that people don't speak Latin everywhere, because then you wouldn't need to speak French or German or American or even English. He scattered them, confused their tongues, and it was that way permanently until this day. On this day, Babel began to be reversed. 
and these people who had gathered. It's very interesting, actually, just in Genesis 11, there's this kind of table of nations, just as there is here in Acts chapter 2. You know, we often say, if you see something, especially in the Acts of the Apostles, that doesn't really need to be there, it's actually important. And you get this, you know, this, you know, where, where is Pontus? You know, how many of you know where Pamphylia is? Why is this here? Because one of the things that Luke is saying is, and he's a master of this kind of thing, remember Babel. It's being reversed. And now what's happening is this glorious unifying through the coming of the Spirit to unite men and women from all kinds of tribes and tongues, peoples, languages, to unite them in Jesus Christ. And you know, um, as I say, Pentecost is not a repeatable or repeated event. It's not wise theologically, doctrinally from a New Testament point of view to speak about having a personal Pentecost or Pentecost being repeated. But what does happen is that in every age, all of the people of God enter into what took place at Pentecost. Abram Kuyper, great Dutch theologian in the past, what I think is a marvelous illustration of this. Uh, he says, now, imagine, imagine a town that hasn't had, like, running water. Incidentally, for any American visitors, we do have hot and cold running water in Scotland. But it's not so long ago that we didn't. And then this great water system is built but then the city or the town expands and there's a, there's a new little housing estate. What happens? Well, says Kuiper, the mayor doesn't come along and say, I declare these waterworks now open. But every new house gets connected to the water supply that on that day the mayor opened. And that's what's happening still today, isn't it? people still being connected to the waterworks all over the world, marvelous ways. And this is what takes place on the day of Pentecost because Jesus has reversed what took place at the Tower of Babel. And we experience that, don't we? You know, friends come in from, from, from Lewis. Did you say Lewis, John, from the United States of America? There are some people here who are English and other kinds of people. It doesn't take us long to recognize we speak the same language in Christ, does it? Some of you go to a conference where there are people from all kinds of nations and, you, and you're, there's this babble of voices going on and, and then you kind of fall into conversation. And if there's a Christian there, it's not long before you recognize him, try and speak. You, you, you know the same word. You maybe sing the same hymns, but you, people used to speak about this wrongly, I think, as the witness of the Spirit. That's not what Paul means in Romans 8, 15, but there is a sense in which if the Spirit's in you, Spirit's in me. If He is your Father and my Father, 
Christ is your Savior and my Savior, then we speak the same language. So, this is a, this is a profound reality about which Simon Peter is speaking. And the result, well, look at what he says as he quotes these words from Joel chapter 2. He says, I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Now, notice these words. They are, they are, I think, quite important to understand aright. And I think what I'm about to say to you is understanding my right. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now, what's he saying there? Well, think about it this way. It won't be very long before the Apostle Paul asks the question, do all prophesy? And the way he asks the question implies grammatically, no, not all prophesy in the sense of having the gift of prophecy, okay? But what Peter is saying, Joel says, is in that day all will prophesy. Now, why can he say that? Well, for this reason, prophecy in the Old Testament Scriptures is not characteristically knowledge of the future that enables you to speak about the future. It's knowledge of the Lord that enables you to live in His presence, understand His Word and praise His name. And you see, what is characteristic of the old age? I think perhaps almost impossible for us to, to understand experimentally and emotionally is that if you were a really true believer, a really true believer, an outstandingly true believer, you could never go into the presence of God, into the holiest place of all, except through one man once a year as your representative. You might have been able to say to him, as perhaps Isaiah's friend said to him, what was it like there when you had that experience? And he could tell you. You would not have had the the access to the revelation of God that Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and the other prophets had. Because you remember, as Amos puts it, he says, now, the Lord reveals His secrets to His servants, the prophets, and their job is to pass on those secrets to you. They pass on those secrets to you. And so you can be a true believer. You can be a fine believer. You can sing the Psalms from beginning to end. But you don't have the access to the secret of the Lord that the prophet has. You don't have the access to the holiest place of all that the high priest has. You only know these things, and you do know them. But you know them secondhand. 
But you see, now Jesus has come as our prophet, our priest, and our king. And now he has sent, listen to this, this is beyond our ability to understand, but it's not beyond our ability to grasp. Jesus, who throughout these 33 years, from the moment of his conception to the moment of his ascension, lived in the presence and power of the person of the Holy Spirit. And the only way we can understand the sheer wonder of what happens at Pentecost is that he says to the Holy Spirit, now Holy Spirit, it's through your energy that I have been the prophet who has spoken as no man has ever spoken and the priest who has gone into the presence of God and himself become the sacrifice to bear sins and now has become the exalted king in the presence of the heavenly Father. Spirit, go to them and so bind them to me that they will no longer need intermediaries so that their knowledge of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit will no longer be second-hand, however real second-hand, but it will be immediate because through you they'll come to know me. And this is what he means when he says, so your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they'll all prophesy. Does that remind you of an Old Testament statement, incidentally? I think it's in Numbers 11 when Moses says, I wish all the Lord's people were prophets what he didn't say, but what he must have thought was this. I wish all the Lord's people were prophets, but they can't be yet until the prophet like Moses, the prophet who supersedes Moses, comes and sends his spirit and gives us all the kind of access into the presence of God so that we're able to say that we know him as our Father that we have the Lord Jesus as our Savior, that we have the Holy Spirit as our companion. It's the tremendous spiritual experience for old covenant believers. But we're living in a new age. Um, remember the first man on the moon? Remember what he said? Actually, there's some debate about what he said because his words were a little blurred at that distance. He said, that's one small step for a man and a giant leap for mankind. I can almost imagine Jesus saying that, Father, this is one step for a man, but oh, it's a giant leap. For all mankind, the doors have swung open. I'm available to all, all the nations. And so when we're living in the Holy Spirit, uh, several things characterize our lives when the Holy Spirit comes. The first is we become deeply convicted of our sin. The Holy Spirit does not come in the first instance to make us happy or joyful but to make us profoundly sad 
and ashamed for our sin. But he does that not to drown us, but to bring us through our sense of need to discover Christ as the answer to that sense of need. That we, our sins, we too have crucified him. But there is forgiveness with him. And we don't need to go to a priest. We don't need to go to a prophet. We don't need to go to a king. It will no longer be necessary, says Jeremiah, for a man to say to his neighbor, know the Lord. Now, he's speaking about prophets, priests, and kings. It won't be necessary for those intermediaries to come and say, I'll tell you how to know the Lord. Because in Jesus Christ, they'll all know me. Well, that's part of the meaning of Pentecost. And truly, we've only really begun to understand its meaning when we also know it's been true of us that when the Spirit came, He convicted us of our sin, of our need of righteousness, the fact that we're under judgment, but not to destroy us, but so that that prayer from Calvary might be fulfilled and answered in our lives. Father, forgive them. They didn't really know what they were doing. Oh, but now I know. What must I do? Oh, believe, he says. Come, repent, be baptized, have your sins forgiven, and taste the Holy Spirit. Well, it's Pentecost, as I at least discovered coming into church this evening. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the generosity, kindness of our Lord Jesus. Thank you for the way your Spirit enables us to love you, to trust your Son, to walk according to your ways, to, to, want, to, to want to please you in every way. And we pray too that for our church here, that the coming of the Holy Spirit may continue to fill us with a real desire to see others in this city and this country and among the nations brought in faith and repentance to our Savior Jesus Christ. And we pray it in His name.